Welcome to episode 191 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Today we're going to be talking about constitutional jurisdiction in Canada over natural resources and the the jurisdiction that comes up in the constitution or the division of powers within the Canadian constitution between the federal government and the provincial government within the Alberta context. And there, uh, you know, Premier Danielle Smith is continually claiming that the federal government is intruding into provincial jurisdiction over oil and gas and electricity and pretty much everything. Uh, and says things like, no, whatever the federal government, you know, the federal government will want will enact uh, some kind of a regulation and or legislation. And she just says, no, that's not going to happen. She doesn't have the power to say that, but she says it anyway. And then there's the, the case of the leak last year and then the uh, spill earlier this year at the uh, Imperial Oil Curl Oil Sands facility where the federal government did step in and stepped in under the authority of the Fisheries Act and uh, Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo played a fairly prominent role in bringing the parties together, getting a working group, maybe holding the Alberta government a bit to account, because certainly Smith and her energy minister at the time, Sonia Savage, were almost missing in action, uh, even though it was a very high profile, controversial uh, story. And so I want to explore these issues, and I'm going to talk to Professor Sean Fluker of the University of Calgary, Faculty of Law, about them. So welcome to the interview, Sean. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Markham. Now, look, we've got this Constitution Act, uh, 1867, and it essentially assigns authority over various aspects of Canadian, of the economy and so on. Uh, Section 91 sets out the federal heads of power. The Section 92 sets out the provincial heads of power. Other sections deal with, to a lesser degree, with issues that come up around natural resources. But let's start with the real basics, kind of, you know, constitutional law 101 uh, for Canada. Could you explain sections 91 and 92 for us, please? <laughs> um I mean, you're asking me to do the impossible, I think. Uh, you know, yeah, so Canada uh, being a, a federal, uh, a federalist country, you know, the legislative powers, 91 and 92, are split uh, between the, uh, the fed, federal government and the provincial governments. Um, you know, they were split, what are we now, and, more than 150 years ago, um, on topics that you know, frankly, you know, are archaic, obviously by by modern standards, and so uh, it can be difficult uh, to apply that text, the you know, the constitutional text, to current modern disputes and disputes over resources has uh, had a huge role to play in terms of. Um, you know, having the Canadian courts, you know, deliberate over the meaning of those provisions, which is essentially a dispute over, you know, which level of government has legislative legislative authority over, over a particular topic. For a long time, you know, Canadian courts were suggesting that, you know, there are these, these uh, each of these subject matters in these two sections were sort of watertight, if you like. And so as a matter of assigning 
responsibility, legislative responsibility over various topics to one government or or the other. Uh, you know, Canadian courts have you know long abandoned that, and you know the, the general consensus you know across the gamut in, in division of legislative authority is that more than one level of government can have legislative authority over over these topics and it's it's really uh, about you know i think trying to find a consensual or a cooperative way forward recognizing that you know in some cases it does make legal and common sense if there can be a difference there you know for the government that is most closely associated with the problem uh, to deal with it on the other hand uh, you know we have you know, modern problems, pollution, climate, what have you, that, you know, don't respect uh, politically drawn boundaries. And so, you know, I think we see the federal government increasingly, seeming to increasingly, or play an increasing role in particularly environmental regulation because of that. Is it fair to say that as a general principle, that the province has authority over the extraction and processing of natural resources that takes place within provincial boundaries and federal authority will kick in when some aspect of that goes across boundaries. And the most obvious example would be pipelines. So pipelines within the province are regulated by the Alberta energy regulator pipelines across uh, provincial borders are the purview of the Canadian energy regulator and the federal government. Is that a, at least a good way to approach this? Well, I think that's a good starting place. Um, I, I think we're increasingly entering a world where, you know, we look to the federal government to legislate on matters that we consider to be of national concern. And so those may take, uh, and th those could take, uh, place wholly within the jurisdiction of a province if you know the sense is is that you know they you know it, it's a matter of national concern whatever that might be um, and, and there are certain types of projects you know nuclear projects for example that you know attract uh, federal jurisdiction and so yeah you know the the, the, the physical crossing of a boundary is a good starting point um, but it is quite a bit more complicated than that. And that, that's why at the outset, you know, you said, give me a basic run over on division of power. I'm not sure it's possible to, to, to really do that. Um, yeah, this is an area of, of some complexity. And there have been many, many court cases over the deck over the decades where the provinces and the federal government have sparred and the courts have settled it one way or another. Uh, you mentioned cooperation, cooperative federalism. My understanding of this is that basically, the, you know, the courts have said, and particularly the Supreme Court of Canada has said, look, uh, there are these many issues, actually, or, you know, areas of jurisdiction where both the federal and the government, federal and provincial governments have jurisdiction. You need to work together for the public, the public good, for the, you know, to promote the, the public interest. And so you should you should cooperate. So what exactly is cooperative federalism, or maybe not so exactly? Yeah. So you know, I like to use a non 
resource-based example to have this discussion and, and, and it's the Securities Act references. So actually, you know, one of the, and it goes back decades, you know, simmering disputes between the provinces and the federal government in Canada has been the regulation of the capital markets. And so again, you know, I have a long history of, you know, direct provincial regulation into capital markets, you know, going back to the days when there was a stock exchange in many or several provinces in Canada. And the federal government, going back to the 60s and 70s, um, has tried to legislate federal legislation governing the Canadian capital markets, making the argument that, um, you know, it's a matter of national concern. And again, looking outward from Canada, international investors expect to only have to deal with one regulator when they deal with Canadian um, capital market regulators. And in fact, they, they have to deal with many. So that has been that that issue has been relitigated many times. And in 2012, the Supreme Court of Canada issued a reference where they directly directly spoke about cooperative federalism. And they say in that the court says in that decision, you know, cooperative federalism has become a defining feature of Canadian uh, federalism. And I think they're making reference to what's happened in the securities industry and the capital markets, which is to say that there is space for the, all the provinces to work together in a consensual manner, which they do in that area. And the federal government uh, may have a role to play in certain aspects of that, but it's not an either or thing. And so, you know, I think the court was trying to do away with, you know, endless federal attempts to, um, to, 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 to legislate over that area. And again, the province is resisting, much like they do in the resources area. It's, it's you know, it's very similar. There's a power here that I'd, I'd like to get you to define and, and discuss briefly because it has implications for natural re resources, and that's residuary power. What is that? Um, well, you know, residual residual power, um, I suppose, you know, would, would be, you know, power that's left over uh, after, you know, one party has exercised their authority. Is that um, is that what you're getting at there, Mark? Yes. And, and in particular, the peace order and good government. When it's when it's applied in this context, yeah, you know, a peace order and good government. So that's that's the provision in Section ninety one of the uh, of the Constitution Act and the divvying up of legislative power and that aspect of POG, as it's normally referred to, is this idea that you know what's left over after you've accounted for all these other specific powers, you know, that vests that power vests with the federal. Government now, Canadian courts have historically been very, very careful and um, cautious about, you know, finding pog power uh, or the use of pog power by the federal government because, you know, it has the potential to really overtake um, the more the enumerated powers in the in the constitution and so you know rightfully so the court has always been reluctant Canadian courts have always been reluctant to grant uh, or to rely on pog uh, to grant federal jurisdiction and in the environment arena that defines frankly the court's jurisprudence um you know from the late 1980s through the 1990s the supreme court of canada went out of its way to avoid 
using uh, or relying on that peace order and good governance uh, section to justify uh, federal environmental legislation. For our American listeners, as an aside here, if you have ever wondered what's the difference between Canada and the United States, the deep fundamental difference, it's found here. Whereas you have in your constitution, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we don't have that right in Canada. We get peace, order, and good government. And I couldn't think of a better way to describe how we our two countries are different. Anyway, that's by the by. So, Sean, but my understanding here is that the uh, the there was recently been there was a challenge by the provinces to federal government's uh, regulation of greenhouse gas emissions. So, carbon tax, uh, federal carbon tax uh, was uh, enacted, and the provinces took the federal government to court and the Supreme Courts and the the, the federal government defense of it was that it was under the peace order and good government provision of the constitution. Have I got that right? Yeah. I, you know, the, the carbon tax reference is, uh, you know, I do think it's a, a little bit of an anomaly because of the way that the federal legislation was enacted, which is to say that, you know, we're, we're backstopping a minimum standard, if you like. Um, so you, you don't have to comply with the federal legislation if you do your own thing right so you know a little different there i think but yeah okay so let's talk about a couple of applications here and the one is in the oil sands because the federal government does play a role there's federal impact assessment legislation uh, there is uh, the fisheries act there's uh, now greenhouse gas emissions that are regulated federally and the, this gets a little complex but and, and one of the reasons why I asked this, Sean, is because uh, there was in the the House of Commons has an in, environment committee. And after the the leak and the and the spill, uh, the Alberta regulator, the Imperial Oil CEO, and a number of uh, indigenous communities, their leaders were asked to testify before that that committee. This is back in April. And the indigenous leaders almost to a person i didn't get to listen to all of the testimony but the ones that i did listen to all of them said we don't trust alberta to regulate the oil sands we the aer is well chief alan adam of the uh, chippewan uh, athabasca chippewan first nation said the aer is a joke and called on the federal government to exercise its authority under the Constitution to take over regulation of the oil sands. And I thought, well, there's an interesting question. So the because, of course, uh, First Nations in particular have a very deep relationship and longstanding relationship with the crown, meaning in their eyes, the federal government, uh, which negotiated their treaties in many cases, before Canada uh, was even became a country. And here they are calling for the feds to override what has traditionally been seen as provincial jurisdiction. What, what should we make of that? Well, you know, I, I'm certainly not uh, of the view that, you know, moving jurisdiction, regulatory jurisdiction from one level of government to another one is necessarily a fix for 
what's going on up there. Um, you know, but there certainly appears to have been some significant missteps on the part of the Alberta Energy Regulator. And of course, you know, that goes back, you know, to, you know, goes goes back a lot, a lot further than that, than that particular incident. Um, and so, but, but I, I don't, I'm not sure that, you know, transferring regulatory jurisdiction from Alberta to Canada uh, is going to really, you know, change things there. In this case, the federal, uh, Stephen, as I mentioned before, Stephen Gilbo stepped in. Uh, there is an investigation that was launched by the Federal Environment Department uh, into potential violations of the Fisheries Act. So there's that investigation going on. The, the minister is organized, uh, brought the parties together into this working group. That's, a, in my memory, that's probably more uh, federal exertion of jurisdiction over the oil sands than I can remember in, in recent years. Uh, is that fair to say? Well, it is. Um, it's not without precedent. And I think, you know, one of the things that we're looking at there, of course, is regulatory prosecutions. Um, and, you know, it's something that uh, deserves, I think, more attention than it has uh, been given in the past. And the most prominent for a long time, the, the the most prominent environmental regulatory prosecution on the books in the country was the, you know, was the prosecution against Syncrude um, for the uh, six, roughly sixteen hundred migratory birds that perished in, in one of their uh, tailings ponds back in two thousand and eight. And again, that was you know a joint federal Alberta investigation in the end. But one does wonder. Um, you know, if it wasn't the federal prosecution side of it that really carried that. Um, and that led to, you know, these regulatory prosecutions, um, they often, whether they're prosecuted or settled, they often lead to regulatory uh, initiatives or changes. And, you know, in the in the Syncrude situation, for example, the sentence that was levied um, in 2010, 2011, uh, resulted in a multi-year uh, research and implementation project on how to improve uh, monitoring and deterrence mechanisms to, to try to prevent birds from landing on tailings ponds in the in the spring. And so, I mean, I think to me that's an indication of, again, when I said earlier, I'm not sure transferring re regulatory authority to the federal government would, would make a huge difference because again, migratory birds is a federal matter, one of those matters of federal jurisdiction. And the oil sands have a major migratory birds problem. And so again, on a regulatory side, it took a major prosecution to see a, any, you know, a lot of movement there. And in fact, from what I understand, we've regressed again back uh, closer to where we were because for one reason or another, um, you know, the, the regulatory process uh, falls apart, whether it's in monitoring or compliance or holding companies to terms and conditions and their approvals and what have you. So, yeah. Well, let's talk about monitoring for a minute. I, I interviewed Dr. Bill Donahue, who uh, back in 2015, 2016 was part of a federal provincial monitoring program. EMRIA I, I, is the acronym. And he made a really interesting point uh, about this because it started out as a joint federal provincial initiative. And once it got up and running a little bit, the, the feds kind of pulled, pulled back from it. 
they they let the province uh, run it and eventually in fact within a very short time i think by 20 late 2016 the the environment uh, alberta environment had already uh, chosen to go in a different way and and absorbed that monitoring body into alberta environment into the into the department but the point that bill made during the course of the interview uh, was he said that the federal government kind of attitude on this was that the Alberta government being closer to the issue uh, was better suited to the actual, you know, day-to-day running of things and monitoring of things and, you know, the assessment of the data and, and, and you know, meeting out uh, or just basically supervising the reg- the regulatory part of it. And, and he, his take on it was that this was often the case is the federal government, once it, once the proper regulatory mechanism were in place or the regulations were in place, that it, it tended to want to leave things to the, the Alberta government to operate, shall we say. Does that make sense? Well, you know, it I, I does make sense. Uh, to me, in you know, in um, in in the sense that yeah, the Alberta government is obviously much closer to these issues and what have you, but it's a problem at all levels of government in terms of you know properly resourcing and operationalizing uh, monitoring and compliance systems in these regulatory frameworks. Um, you know, Alberta is not alone in in not not doing a nearly good enough job there. Um, but, you know, again, you know, and so it, it is, that is a, a systemic problem in, in modern government. And so when you're dealing with a, with an operation like the oil sands region, um, you know, it, it really is over the top. And, you know, there was, unfortunately for Alberta, um, you know, that early on in the, at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic, right, you had all these suspensions of, of monitoring requirements in the oil sands and, 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 and the rest of it. And, and so, yeah, it, 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 it looks bad uh, to the province for sure. Well, let's leave the oil sands for, for a moment and move on to this uh, ongoing conflict between Premier Daniel, uh, Premier Daniel Smith and the federal government. Every time something comes up uh, where the federal government is going to take some initiative in, you know, oil and gas, uh, Smith says, "No, you can't do that, and we won't. Uh, we won't implement it here." And the latest one, uh, or, or maybe the best example, is the idea of an oil, ga- oil and gas emissions cap. And now, where that came from is in uh, 2021 at the COP26. Uh, talks, the uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau stood up at an event and said, Canada is going to implement an immediate oil and gas emissions cap because oil and gas is responsible for, oh, I think 26% of of national greenhouse gas emissions. And the oil sands alone is 12%. I mean, it's a huge problem. And so they were going to put this emissions cap on it. Well, here we are, you know, two years later, and we still don't have an emissions cap. We might have it in 2024 now, according to Gilbo. And this has been a really contentious scrap between, well, <laughs> Smith is making a lot of noise and she's and she's saying, you know, that this is really an excuse to shut down the 
the uh, the Alberta oil and gas industry. I mean, it's very inflammatory, apocryphal kind of you know narr- language and narrative, and and has no basis in in reality. But I mean, this is politics, so uh, we shouldn't be surprised, I guess. But she doesn't have any of these powers, does she? I mean, she you know because if there's an emissions cap, the Supreme Court case we talked about already that established the. Canadian government's ability to uh, to regulate emissions applies here. So that's already settled law. And a lot of this stuff, is it just politics or is there any scrap of legitimacy to her claims that Alberta can just simply resist the federal government's initiatives in these areas? Well, um, so, I mean, to go back to where we started then, I mean, the, the carbon tax reference is not going to be definitive on the question of an emissions cap because um, you know if the federal government was to legislate an emissions cap my understanding is that they're talking about using the Canadian Environmental Protection Act um, for that and so you know again that actually would you know create an, a new basis for a challenge and it would be challenging the constitutionality of that legislation although it has been challenged already in the past by Quebec, um, but again, this would be on the question of, you know, GHG emissions. And the Supreme Court of Canada is, as we speak, sitting, of course, on, you know, or working through its decision on Alberta's challenge to the Federal Impact Assessment Act. And, you know, really a big part of that challenge is the federal government's um, inclusion in that act of addressing the impacts um, of climate change in relation to regulated projects under that act. And so again, that this is part of that, um, yes, part of that battle, if you like. And yeah, I, you know, I, I, I think this is one of the challenges of our time, frankly, and that is to say, I mean, I, I, there's, there's, you can see at the national level, um, the federal government and other parts of Canada saying, well, look, you know, emissions is a national issue. Um, they don't respect borders. And uh, if, if the provinces aren't going to do it, then the federal government, um, the federal, the federal government can do it. Um, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the federal government, but we're not seeing um, steps being taken, you know, at the, at the provincial level for this. So, um, yeah, it's, that's, it's a challenge of our time for sure. So given the, the existential threat to the Alberta oil and gas industry, uh, from the global energy transition, and I mean, you know, the international energy agency now is talking about, we might see peak oil demand in 20, as early as 2028. I wouldn't be surprised in the next year or so, if we see them now talking, you know, moving that dial and going back to maybe 2027 or something. But anyway, the point the point here is that, and I made this argument in a column recently, is that essentially what Alberta is doing, what Smith and the UCP are doing, is throwing up a shield around Alberta to try to protect it uh, from climate policy from and from any other kind of threats that might come from markets and what have you. And they've they see the federal government's climate policies as as enemy number one. So is can I guess the Alberta government in theory, it can t- every time the federal government 
brings in an emissions cap or has some other kind of legislation, they can basically stall all of that with with legal challenges, constitutional challenges, and 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 go on and and they can do at the very least they can put it you know they can delay these things by years, and and I guess is has this been tried this strategy been tried in the past by other provinces or even by Alberta? You know, one of the great ironies in environmental regulation in Canada is that the federal government is always sort of put out, and the provinces are constantly putting out the federal government as this, you know, monster or boogeyman out there that's, you know, just out there to implement environmental policies and shut down industry uh, at the provincial level. The reality on the ground is actually that the, the federal government has historically been very coy um, and, you know, in the eyes of, of many actually have, have had a very, very light touch on environmental matters. And, you know, another area that I work on where I would say that is 100% the issue is, for example, on the endangered species file. I mean, we have federal endangered species legislation, and I, I would argue that there might be two patches of protected critical habitat in the whole country under that statute. And that's because the federal government is extremely reluctant to exercise its power. So when I hear Alberta and the Alberta government talk about how there's this aggressive federal government out there that's going to, you know, shut down industries with environmental policies, I mean, history just history just doesn't back that up, frankly. Um, it, it really, it really doesn't. So I, I don't expect um, to see a federal government attempt to to do what Alberta is, you know, saying it is going to do. But, you know, Alberta is going to challenge whatever the current federal government uh, puts out in legislation. I, I don't think it's really going to matter um, because I, I, I do think it is, uh, you know, the division of powers question is going to take this back to where we started uh, here. Um, it's a highly politicized area. And so, you know, Alberta is, you know, taking on Ottawa uh, for, for, you know, for reasons that, you know, um, sometimes can be hard to understand, uh, you know, in, 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 in that sense. They seem to be using the division of powers issue as a political wedge. Um, and, you know, that is a service to nobody frankly, um, right? Uh, and so that, I mean, to me, that's that's a that's a big part of the problem here. So if I were to sum this up, the, the Constitution divides powers between the province and the uh, provinces and the federal government. There, we have areas of cooperative federalism, and many of them actually, where the governments uh, are expected by the courts to cooperate and for the greater good. Uh, there have been a, any number of clashes over uh, natural resources over the decades, uh, most recently over the carbon tax and, and regulation of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, but Alberta in particular, because of the prevalence of the oil and gas industry, this is part of the fight back strategy that former Premier Jason Kenney talked about in 2019. And and implemented is it's like just relentlessly pushing back and there's the politics of it there's the narrative of it you know as you know this painting of the federal government as intrusive and and uh, out to uh, out to you know basically phase out 
the the province's biggest industry and sort of the economic engine of the of, of Alberta. Uh, but at the end of the day, there there's those, those fights. But the truth is that the federal government, for the most part, has a light touch when it comes to these regulations. Would prefer that Alberta regulate it properly and really steps in when the the provincial government is reluctant to act or reluctant to either either by enacting regulation or by enforcing the regulations that are there. Is that a reasonable summary of where we're at? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, the other thing to remember is that environment as an idea is not something that's specifically mentioned in the Constitution Act because of, you know, when it was drafted. So um, it can lend those issues lend themselves to these disputes. The other thing I would say is, yeah, on the prosecution side or the enforcement side, you know, we're more likely to see um, a federal government take stronger positions um, than we, than we would otherwise. I, I would I would agree with that. And you know, on the the federal government's approach to all of this, um, I say it's very political between the between Alberta and, and Ottawa. I, I mean, it was a Harper government that implemented. Um, more or less the current version of the federal impact assessment regime. The, the impact assessment act as we see it now is, is, is I will say a, uh, a tweak of that, frankly. Um, we didn't see, uh, you know, the challenge to, 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 the, to that, you know, federal impact assessment regime. Um, so, you know, that suggests, I think that a lot of these disputes are politically motivated and, um, you know they're yeah they're they're um, they're not doing a service to anyone frankly at the end of the day my own view is all this stuff needs to be uh these impacts need to be addressed they need to be regulated um you know if alberta had or has a robust impact assessment process there would be less need for a for a uh for a, for a federal process uh, operating in alberta and yeah, carbon emissions are are you know not just an Alberta problem. They're not just a Canada problem. They're a global problem, and you know it's a problem that needs to be addressed by by one level of government or uh, or or another. And so um, you know at the end of the day, I guess you know the federal government fills the gaps. Frankly, if if uh, if province if one or more provinces are are unwilling to do that um, in their within their own jurisdiction. Yes, and and I would argue that as you know, as difficult a topic as this has been over the decades, it's now acute, and and for two reasons. One is, of course, is the climate crisis because Alberta is the Canada's largest emitter by far, uh, and also the biggest opponent of climate policies of any type, uh, and and also because of the energy transition and the fact that sooner you know in the very not distant future, uh, Alberta's markets are going to begin to shrink. And, and it has to look at how it might adapt to that. Um, and now is the absolute wrong time for the province to be taking this kind of an approach. If there was ever a, a crying need for cooperative federalism around resource extraction, now is the time. And we what we've got is the exact opposite of that. So well, thank you very much for clarifying this, Sean. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure.